Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for part two of the interview with Ben Einstein of Bolt. In this portion of the interview, we cover Ben's position on how startups can cross the chasm from innovators to the majority, how Fitbit pulled this off where Pebble failed, whether his observations are exclusive to hardware or if they apply to all startups. Ben's insights after 10 years of attending CES and seeing the evolution of Eureka Park. And finally, we'll get Ben's advice for founders starting an IoT, smart hardware, or connected device startup. Here's part two of the interview with Ben Einstein. So, I, you know, I've asked uh, Steve Blank and Mark Suster about this, mm-hmm. this concept of crossing the chasm. And um, what I liked about one of your pieces that, that I came across is that you actually provided an example of uh, Pebble <laughs> versus Fitbit and how yeah. Fitbit was able to cross the chasm, moving from mm-hmm. innovators and early adopters to, to the early and late majority. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are some of the key reasons that you thought Fitbit succeeded here where, where Pebble did not? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are uh, there are many reasons and I don't know all of them. I, you know, I wasn't, you know, formally involved in, in, in either company, um, you know, happen to know the founders well and, and, and have a good idea of, of how they're operating, but you know, I don't have the full picture. So, you know, take everything I say here with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, I, I think it's really important to, to, to look at examples of companies and how they operate to, to sort of affect my thinking and, and our portfolio companies thinking. Um, but I don't have the answer, um, uh, on a, on a, on a sort of, High level standpoint, I think marketing is a really powerful tool here and Fitbit has done an amazing job of building a very valuable brand. Um, and so a lot of that is just by focusing on an element of thing of, of life that you know people tend to really care about, which is health and fitness. Uh, Pebble did not. Uh, they started to towards sort of the, the end of their trajectory there. But um, really, from the beginning, they were a consumer electronic device uh, and they were really focused on early adopters and, and developers and um, sort of a, a fairly specific window um, uh, of sort of people's mind. Uh, uh, Fitbit, on, on, on the other hand, was incredibly good, even from the very beginning, at talking about benefits uh, of, of really what their sort of platform and sort of product really spoke uh, about. 
And that, that uh, it sounds like a small change, but that way of thinking about a company from sort of the customer first sort of brand building standpoint uh, creates uh, a huge number of changes to the way that company makes decisions about what to do and where to spend time. So I think probably the most powerful uh, sort of sort of effect there is the way they distribute that product. Um, you know, Pebble uh, was sold, you know, primarily online, uh, direct to consumers. They began to go into places like Best Buy and, and Target and other sort of traditional retailers that focus on consumer electronic products. <clears throat> Fitbit always had a weird skew to this. Uh, and that that sort of the way they think about skewing the trajectory of their channel strategy was really powerful. Um, and it's amazing. I remember in the beginning, Fitbit was the same thing. You'd see him at Best Buy, you see him in Walmart, you see him sort of in the big box stores in the consumer electronics section. Um, as they got more and more mature, you'd find them in really weird places. You'd start seeing them in you know, CVS and Walgreens, you would start seeing them. I remember seeing one at a Whole Foods once. I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, just odd places, right? But it turns Lifestyle out- Lifestyle brand. Totally, yeah. And and it turns out if you are going to, you know, whatever, to Whole Foods to buy whatever, $5 of kale and, you know, fresh pressed juice and whatever, uh, you probably also really care about your health and fitness. Um, and, so, and so it's this really interesting way to think about distribution, which Fitbit, I think more than almost any other consumer electronic product nailed in their ability to, uh, you know, sort of build these, these sort of distribution channels into all kinds of places that you typically don't see products like this. And uh, I think that almost more than anything else, maybe with the exception of brand, um, is, is a huge part of why that company is, is you know, is, 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 you know, worth billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, of course, people will complain, oh, well, there could be a failing now in the market. Da, da, da. Um, you know, I, I always turn back to uh, Fred Wilson's quote um, when when the whole Zynga thing happened. Um, and, and, you know, he was talking about, well, you know, if, you know, even though the value has gone down from whatever, 10 billion to three or whatever the number was at the time, um, you know, if, if you had told me when when, you know, I first invested in that company that it'd be worth three billion dollars, I'd say, holy shit, what a success. Um, <laughs> and it's really, really important to remember that, like the, the game that we play as venture investors is not about, oh, my God, this wild, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of whatever. Um, it's really around, you know, finding a few companies that really make a difference, um, uh, both from an economic standpoint and from sort of a human uh, sort of ecosystem standpoint. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think Fitbit has affected a lot of good in the world. Uh, and whether they're worth 10 billion or three or five or 100 doesn't really matter much. It's a big number. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, th those investors feel really proud of being part of that company at the beginning. So as I understand it, you guys invest exclusively in hardware, not yeah. software alone, but the intersection Correct. of hardware and software. Um, Correct. Yeah. So and, and I think that that uh, it's, you know, it's worth pointing out that uh, the definition of hardware has changed. Right. And so, you know, 10 years ago, if you said I'm a hardware investor, people would first of all look at you like you're an insane person. <laughs> um, uh, but they also would think of hardware as, you know, a piece of plastic. Maybe it had some circuit board in it and you sell it at, you know, Best Buy or Home Depot or whatever for 20 points of gross margin. Um, that is really not what we're talking about here. Uh, we have, you know, maybe one company in a portfolio that sort of fits that mold. Um, for the most part, these are, you know, very different types of products that are really architected around software uh, or some other sort of recurring transaction with the consumer, like consumables. Um, and and they behave very differently uh, in terms of, you know, hiring and product and, and team building and, um, and, and distribution and customer interaction and all the things that go into building a company. They behave much more similarly to software companies than to the traditional, you know, sort of brick and mortar hardware companies.
Absolutely. Hardware is sort of a Trojan horse for, for totally. uh, software, for brand, for value. Yeah, I, I, I really love this uh, this phrase that Brad Feld, um, an investor at Foundry and sort of one of the first real hardware investors, uh, th- throws around that, uh, you know, it's not that he invests in hardware, he, but he, he invests in software wrapped in plastic. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I find that I find that incredibly compelling from a from a, you know, sort of simple, a little bit off the uh, cuff, but I think really helpful. So, so how do you think about sort of these lessons and, and some of the things you've shared today, do you think they're exclusive to hardware startups or do you think they apply to software as well? That's a good question. Um, I, uh, to be honest, uh, my, my knowledge and value as an investor more or less falls off a cliff uh, when it comes to software. Uh, I, you know, I don't even have a Facebook account. I'm like pretty, uh, pretty technologically <laughs> uh, sort of uh, naive. Ben. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know it's not good. Um, I just I just love tinkering and I building w- physical things. <laughs> I was just interviewing an LP, uh, Trey Hart, in Chicago, and yeah, he, sure, had, totally. he had a BlackBerry, and I was like, yeah. Trey, you got to be kidding me, man! Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Trey's a good guy, and uh, you know, I think means well. Um, but yeah, there there is a there is a definitely a, a drop off even between you know GPs and LPs um, when it comes to technological savvy. Um, I am I am not I am pretty good on the hardware side. We buy a bunch of stuff and 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 play with all kinds of things. Mostly I take stuff apart, uh, which is how I I learn uh, how things are made and how people think about product. Um, but I am definitely a a software luddite, uh, and so I, you know I definitely want to be careful uh, in in commenting too much about software in general. Um, I, I imagine a lot of this stuff in certain ways does apply to hardware or sorry, uh, correction uh, to, to software. Um, I just don't know exactly how or what those things are. Um, so, I, you know, I, I've heard, you know, folks like Paul Graham, um, you know, Fred Wilson, other sort of well-known investors that talk publicly a lot. Um, I think some of these uh, sort of ideas are, are pretty uh, sort of ingrained in software culture. Um, but I also think there are many differences too. Well, in light of the, the hardware focus, can I get your thoughts on, on CES? A little bit. Of course, of course. I know you've been going for 10 years and you've seen the evolution of Eureka Park and and the show at large. So I don't know. What are some of your your key observations from uh, the development of CES over time? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting place. I am not a fan of Vegas in general, um, uh, and, and, and I actually tend to spend less time at events and, and big conferences and stuff than probably the average investor. Um, you know, I've, I've been a hardware guy my whole life, you know, tinkering since I was a little kid. And, and um, you know, even in my professional life for the last you know, decade or so, um, you know, hardware has been, you know, a core thing of, uh, you know, that I spend my time on. Um, and so there's really no better place to see that than at CES. Uh, in terms of scale, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing site. Um, uh, and even the general public, uh, you know, I think for, for many years, CES was, was open to, to the general public. I think it's now sort of quasi open to, to, to the general public. It's a very interesting place uh, just to walk around for half a day or so. Um, I was really surprised when I landed uh, at, at at the airport, at, uh, you know, for CES this year, and they hand me this, you know, this badge that says congratulations on 10 years. I was like, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> I feel way older than I thought I would. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's been amazing, uh, uh, you know, being there and, and watching not every year in a row, but, but uh, I think it's been maybe a dozen years, um, uh, since the first time I, I, I went to CS, uh, and, um, it has dramatically changed, uh, around startups. And so in the beginning it was in, you know, Las Vegas convention center, it was this gigantic, you know, sort of like you know, huge open structure, uh, and the startup, you know, small little companies are just sprinkled around. Um, and you know, you'd have an area for whatever automotive and every automotive startup would be over there. And then you have an area for whatever consumer electronics and, you know, be focused around whatever entertainment and television. And you have, you know, any startups around there would be over there. Um, 
And it creates this really bizarre dynamic where, you know, you're at a little tiny booth sitting next to Sony with like $10 million booths and, you know, all these you know models and whatever. Um, and it, it was sort of odd. It felt, it, you know, made you feel very small and sort of insignificant. Uh, uh, and now they, they've, they've built this thing, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners know about called Eureka Park, um, which started off as an experiment. I remember being there the first year. It was just like kind of dingy, like, you know, sort of uh, poorly thought through <laughs> kind of like crappy carpeted room in the Venetian. Um, and it's now, it's now turned into this. I mean, it's hard to describe, um, sort of like Mecca of hardware startups and it's, you know, it's now, you know, two huge floors. Um, you know, it's probably, I don't know what the number is, but it's gotta be north of a thousand companies. Um, there is, you know, tens of thousands of people just kind of mulling around, maybe 10,000 people just sort of mulling around. Um, it's, and then you feel this energy, it's very palpable. And I find it, you know, 10 times more interesting to be in, that space than the sort of big show floor with all the gigantic companies and the new cars and the new whatever. Um, I really, really, really prefer um, the the sort of you know sort of uh, focused uh, sort of scrappy small companies with crazy ideas all all sort of sort of in one incredibly cramped room. Uh, that, that that just it's just much more my style and and just watching that change over time has been really interesting. Awesome. Any other thoughts or advice for uh, founders starting a, a hardware IoT or connected device startup? Oh man, uh, I mean, you, you kind of got some of my uh, my my biggest points there. Um, often around focus, uh, being careful with setting expectations too lofty. Um, I think you can never ask for too much advice. Uh, I try to be really helpful with um, with 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 hardware companies getting going. Um, I don't have the answer to everything, but you know, we we look at you know about. 1600, uh, uh, you know, hardware companies every year. Uh, so you get pretty good at, at being able to see what works and what doesn't. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I'm totally, totally open to chatting with companies. Um, you know, I, I even have a policy now of trying to reach out to every hardware company that I hear about that gets funded and just say, Hey, listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert at what you do, but, you know, I'm trying to help, uh, you know, every hardware company be successful. So if there's anything I can do to be useful, um, just let me know, uh, which I think hopefully people view as helpful. Um, so, uh, I, it, it's a little hard to generally comment, but, 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 you know, if people have questions or comments or curiosities about hardware, I'm always happy to be useful to them. And your, your check size and sort of valuation range where you guys invest. Yeah, so we are an incredibly early stage investor. Um, in many of our companies, we're the first money in. Uh, we have this sort of unusual way of operating with companies. We have a you know internal engineering team uh, of, of folks that have shipped you know tens of millions of units of product. Any company we invest in uh, gets the support of our full team. Uh, so hey, you know maybe they don't have a mechanical engineer. They're not sure about how to how to mold a part or whatever. And we can you know either either help or do uh, that for many of the companies that we invest in. Um, our check ties tend to be fairly small in this sort of 100 to 500k range uh, and valuation, uh, you know, for most of the companies, um, it, you know, we're sort of in the sort of four, five, six sort of pre um, range, uh, but it really you know, runs the gamut. We've invested at, you know, as high as 30 posts uh, and as low as two. Um, so it, it, it really depends depending on the entrepreneur and the space that they're working at and how much capital we believe the company needs. Gotcha. Uh, ben, if we could address any topic related to startups or venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Ooh, good one. Um, let's see. I find, uh, again, I'm going to skew everything towards hardware cause that's all I know. Um, 
I find not enough people uh, talk about advertising when it comes to hardware. Uh, it's actually pretty different from the way people think about software and consumer behavior is really different. Uh, there are very few people that know about this. Um, I w again, I'll use uh, Brad Feld's name. Uh, hopefully he's okay with that. Um, you know, talking about, you know, how to capitally efficient figure out how to, how to spend money on advertising and collect customers. Um, I would love to hear more people talk about that publicly. I'm actually working on a on a on a blog post uh, with him um, to sort of talk in more detail about um, about how how small consumer hardware companies need to need to need to talk about their sort of marketing and ad spend. Um, it is a thing that is uh, you know everybody or maybe not everybody but many people are now aware of. Okay, hardware is a little different. I need help on engineering and manufacturing and crowdfunding and all the things that sort of I talk about. Um, but uh, the real hard problem in building a good hardware company is understanding how to acquire customers uh, and is a thing that you can only do once you've acquired, you know, tens of millions of customers and you really have a good idea of what that looks like, uh, because it's very, very, very hard to know what that is from my, my stage of investing, which is, you know, whatever, five people on a dog, uh, you know, try, try, trying to, you know, ship a thing. Uh, and you don't really optimize the advertising stuff until you're, you know, you're a much larger company. Uh, and I tend to be less involved when the, when the companies are that big. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of a little bit of a different dynamic that I wish uh, was more in the public eye for sure. Uh, ben, what startup investor has inspired and influenced you most and why? Ooh, that's a good question. Um You've mentioned quite a few on the show today. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't want to I don't want to belabor those. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I think, you know, I, I've, I've talked about Brad a few times. Uh, you know, he's been I think he's a mentor to many, many young VCs. Uh, and so, um, you know, I don't know if it's super unique, but but, um, you know, find his voice and honesty incredibly empowering. Um, he's one of the very few people to be, you know, just super direct uh, with the companies and, and, and the founders and other folks uh, like me that he talks to. Um, he was one of the first people to be open to investing in hardware companies and one of the first people to encourage me um, to, you know, shut down my my, my last company and, and, and try to do something bolder uh, with Bolt. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty valuable thing, right? Someone that actually tells you what you're doing is interesting and it'll be useful. Um, many people are told no, myself included, when, when you're setting out to start something. Uh, and so you look for a handful of people that are that are really positive about what you're doing. So I, I would say, you know, Brad has sort of an outsized influence uh, on on the way I think. Um, but there are many other people that have that have influenced me um, a huge amount as well. Great. And uh, finally, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Ah, super easy. I, I can give people my email address if that's okay. I'm totally open to for anybody to, yep. to super chat if they have uh, questions or need advice about hardware. Um, I don't know anything about anything else, but when it comes to <laughs> hardware, uh, I'm your guy. Uh, and so that's uh, just Ben at Bolt, B-O-L-T uh, dot I-O. Awesome. Well, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I really enjoy your writing and I hope you do more of it. And thanks so much for the time today. Cool. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. All right. That was a great interview with Ben. Thanks so much to him for coming on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called narrow customers, low expectations. Ben looks for companies solving a specific problem for a specific customer over those that are solving something a little bit for everyone. We discussed the comparison of Google Glass and Snap Spectacles, one with broad focus, the other narrow. Interestingly, from an engineering standpoint, they are nearly identical. Radios, molded plastic, lenses, batteries, buttons, and sensors. But Glass tried to be all things to all people in very general use cases, whereas Spectacles was designed for a single purpose with a very specific function. So Google created really high user expectations, whereas Snap set user expectations very low. And setting these low yet targeted expectations allows one to delight customers instead of disappoint. Ben reviewed the first thing that Snap did really well. They chose a specific type of person, Gen Z, for their customer. The whole experience was streamlined for a very specific group. The product was also very specific in its design and function, so as to appeal to the group. Bold colors, sold on demand in interesting vending machines, leveraging both scarcity and FOMO. We also compared the launch of Siri with Echo. These products were similar in nature, but scope was very different. Apple went broad, targeting all customers with high expectations. They integrated Siri into all new phones with many features. Whereas Echo went with a physical product that sits in one place and has simple to understand functions. Launching as a platform in Siri's case versus launching as a product in Echo's case. Echo set low user expectations and increased them over time. And Ben reminded us that Amazon is often under the radar. Under-marketing and over-delivering. Their algorithm is designed to delight people by creating much better experiences than the expectation. And Ben acknowledges that startups cannot compete directly with companies like Apple and Amazon. In his example, he said that there were 1,500 people working on the Echo before launch. But what startups can do is change the game, create unfair advantages by focusing on a specific problem. Startups do have an advantage. They are small, flexible, and can approach problems in unique ways. We also discussed the second thing that Snap did really well with the spectacles, which we will cover in key takeaway number two, crossing the chasm with benefits, not features. Ben has noticed a recurring issue with failed hardware startups. They are too focused on features over benefits. Here we reviewed the example of Fitbit versus Pebble. Fitbit chose something that the mass market cares about, health and fitness, and they built a brand around the fitness use case. The product, website, and even retail locations reflect a lifestyle brand. Where Pebble focused their marketing on what it is, Fitbit focused on what it does. Ben said, Companies that sell low-cost consumer electronics must be solving a problem that early and late-majority populations identify with. The technical, rich feature sets, in Pebble's case, appealed to the innovators and the techies, but they could never cross the chasm and reach the market majority. These customers don't buy for the tech, they buy for the benefit. 
This is evident in each company's website. Pebbles, featuring their e-paper watch with the statement, Be Fit and Smart. Fitbits, featuring a woman running in the rain with the statement, Find Your Fit. Benefit-oriented brand marketing evokes emotions. And this is how the success stories have reached the mass market. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called Just Say No to Crowdfunding. Ben is the first investor I've spoken with that is down on product-based or donation-based crowdfunding. He said it's a focus issue. The founders are focused on designing a video that converts rather than creating a product that delights. Ben said that, quote, it's so much more powerful to have someone give feedback on how their experience actually was using a thing versus someone buying into the idea of a thing, which almost inevitably will let them down, end quote. He wants to hear founders talk about the 10 people that are using and loving the product. He wants to see videos of excited users talking about their experience. From his standpoint, 10 real delighted users are much more powerful than 10,000 non-users that hit the back this campaign button. And Ben did suggest that the most important part of this is an intense focus on how you can learn as fast as possible, as early as possible, before you ship. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called A Thesis Begins with a Moat. Defensibility, switching costs, barriers to entry. We hear these terms often when discussing startups. It's not only important to build something of value, but value that can be protected. Many in venture capital refer to this as the moat. Renowned investor Terrence Yang was asked recently, as an investor, if you could ask founders only one question before making a funding decision, what would it be? And Terrence's answer, how are you building a unbreachable moat protecting a very valuable castle? There are different types of factors that can create a moat, some internal, others external. An external example would be regulation. In a previous life, I have dealt with regulatory agencies, including the FAA, while working in aerospace and defense, and the EPA, while working in the water industry. In both cases, the regulations were so onerous that getting a product to market was a multi-year regulatory process. We even employed lobbyists to work on our behalf. While this put strain on our new product development efforts, it also created enormous barriers to entry, protecting the value of products in market. There are also internal factors that create moats. These are factors that reside at the company or product level. Union Square Ventures has a thesis to invest in companies with network effects. Big surprise, central to their thesis is a moat. Network effects drive more user value, raise entry barriers, and increase switching costs. The problem with external factors is they often do more to limit innovation rather than promote it. External factors favor the incumbent, whereas internal factors favor the innovator. We can argue the merits of internal versus external moats, but it's certainly easier to exert control over those factors that are in-house. If the moat exists at the product level, you own the moat. If you've hired a band of brigands to build and manage your castle's moat, you may own the customer, but the master of the moat owns you. Now, as an investor, instead of looking for startups with a variety of different moats, what if your thesis had a built-in moat? What if the very category of startups you invest in creates enormous barriers to entry, brand equity, and high switching costs? This is why I invest in smart hardware. Today, Ben mentioned a quote from Brad Feld. I don't invest in hardware. I invest in software wrapped in plastic. There's a big difference between a dumb gadget that collects dust 
and a smart device that gets more useful over time. Shelfware is to SaaS as the gadget is to smart hardware. There are a number of different reasons why I invest in smart hardware. I've developed a smart hardware product. I love the business model. I love the annuities. I love that there's constant pressure to create more customer value. I love that a sale is the beginning of a customer relationship and not the end. But the thing I love most is that the smart hardware moat is incredibly wide and enormously deep. Not only is it exponentially more difficult to do smart hardware than software alone, thus raising entry barriers, but the connection and brand equity that consumers feel for physical products far exceeds that of virtual products. The reason for this is that smart hardware benefits from many principles of behavioral economics. These principles serve to deepen the relationship with the customer. A sampling of principles that are far more powerful for physical products than virtual includes the sunk cost fallacy, the default effect, escalation of commitment, the status quo bias, perceptual contrast, social proof, and the consistency principle. All these factors make the customer more likely to buy, to use, to promote, and to convince themselves that they've made a great purchase. Does a moat have to be hardware? Absolutely not. But should a moat be fundamental to startup strategy from day one? You know my position. And if founders must face this when designing their business, why shouldn't investors when creating their thesis? Okay, thanks for joining me today for a great one with Ben Einstein. If you're exclusively a software investor, I guarantee that we've got some heavy hitters on deck that should appeal to you. Of course, I'd really appreciate if you could tell a friend or write a review in iTunes for the show. Spreading the word and providing social proof helps keep the show going strong, and it always makes my day to hear what listeners are working on and that the show has helped out. Okay, that'll wrap things up for today. As always, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.